0: Welcome to the All About Animals Radio. We are a volunteer-run community radio station dedicated to all animals and those who advocate for them. My name is Nikita Dewan and I'm excited to kickstart a new series for the Water World Show dedicated to marine animals. Today I'm really looking forward to be talking to Andrea Ritchie. She is the executive director at the Hong Kong Shark Foundation a charity that raises awareness about shark conservation including unsustainable practices like shark finning and selling of shark products. They particularly involve the youth and schools and educational ambassador programs. Thank you so much for joining today, Andrea. How are you? Hi,
1: Nikita. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Um, So can you just start by telling us briefly about you personally and how you became involved in animal welfare?
1: I've been living in Hong Kong for almost 32 years and uh, started out in the corporate world. And uh, I used to be a lawyer and um, then I was working for a Wall Street firm as a corporate communications. And then I became a headhunter. And for me, You know, I was working with people who um, had very high pressured, important jobs and they were making a lot of money. And uh, I had a little bit of an epiphany in 2015 when my father passed away and I thought more about what's the meaning of life. And so I started to give back. I decided I needed to give back to the planet, to our community. And I started volunteering. And I volunteered for about four or five different charities. And I, one of those charities was Hong Kong Shark Foundation. And I was so blown away that even though I was an educated person, why did I not know more about what was going on in the world all around me? And why did I not know more? And why was I negligently contributing to the disaster You know, and the destruction of sharks, for example, when I would go to a wedding and I would eat shark fin soup. So I had a real eye opening experience and um, I decided to um, start, you know, really teaching and educating people, especially young people like yourself in secondary schools, high schools. And I started teaching and I did that for three years for the Shark Foundation and then. I, um, I quit my job completely, and then um, that was three and a half years ago. And now I have been for seven and a half years, basically, I have been working at the Shark Foundation. Now I'm the executive director, and we're all about education and empowering people uh, to make that important change.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think that's very insightful how you focused on just giving back and just the progression of your journey. I think that's something that's common with a lot of animal activists. And you said you are now at the Hong Kong Shark Foundation. Can you just tell us about it and its mission, also its origin and history?
1: Hong Kong Shark Foundation is a local Hong Kong charity Um, We started out as activists and, you know, trying to raise awareness. So our mission actually is five words, raise awareness about shark conservation Mm -hmm. and educate people to say no to all shark products, including shark fin soup. So, you know, we started out On the activist side, we're not researchers. We're an activist group, very similar to like WildAid. And so we're very much involved in changing hearts and minds, educating people so that they can make that cognitive change in their habit. And the habit I'm talking about is eating seafood such as shark right? Because people think it's all about shark fin soup, but we're going to get into that in a little bit, but it's actually become a global shark crisis. And so this global shark crisis has grown so much that, you know, we are estimating that now more than 100 million sharks are killed every year just for their fins. And in fact, marine biologists estimate it's more like 270 million sharks are killed every year for their whole body. You know, traditionally people were cutting the fins off, throwing the bodies back in, selling the, sending the fins to Asia, making a lot of money. But then they realized that actually whole shark has become very marketable, very sellable. And I can explain that to you more a little bit, but so our mission is, to um, explain to kids, you know, and explain to people in corporates, why we all need to be a part of this global shark crisis, or why we need to be a part of the solution for this global shark crisis. And so that's why I'm excited to talk to your listeners today. They could be other act animal activists, but they could be just regular people who want to learn about how they can help. So I hope today I can highlight the problem, but I can also talk about solutions to the problem.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned shark finning. Can you just provide an overview of what is shark finning and why and how does it endanger sharks and how prevalent is the problem in Hong Kong?
1: So shark finning is something that has been around for uh, more than a thousand years. Uh, Historically, it started in China in the Song Dynasty around 960 A.D., When um, a poet, uh, Mr. Mei Yao Chen, wrote a poem about shark fin soup, and it was a recipe about how to prepare it. And the Song Dynasty Emperor supposedly saw this poem and started to serve shark fin soup at the palace and to dignitaries that came and visited. And then it became a status symbol amongst people. For example, if they were having a wedding or an annual, um, say, an annual dinner or maybe Chinese New Year or something, they would serve this and say, look, this is the food that the emperor eats. And we call that conspicuous consumption. And conspicuous consumption is where you eat something or you go to a restaurant in your best clothes. You know, you wear your, your, your most fancy kicks. You where you, you have your tea, you have your key fob for your Tesla, maybe you have a, a Gucci wallet or something. and you, you want people to see that you are successful. And um, this is very common in many cultures. And so um, you know conspicuous consumption unfortunately means that especially in Asia, you're probably going to order the most expensive items so you can impress your, friends, clients, or whatever it is. And so we're trying to um, make people realize that um, this type of face-getting type of activity is what we, we don't need to do that. We we don't need to impress our friends and our corporate contacts by buying the most expensive dish, which happens to be shark fin soup. You know, there are other ways that we can do that. So again, that goes back to that change in cognitive behavior. Um, so we estimate more than 100 million sharks are killed just to fuel this shark finning business. But what's really interesting is this is not uh, exclusive to Chinese culture. Um, even though it might have started there, the fastest growing cultures for shark fin soup now are Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, India, interestingly enough, um, Cambodia, Um, If I mentioned Vietnam, you know, countries that maybe they're not um, uh, traditionally having it for um, maybe traditionally they don't have this item. But now they're seeing how Chinese culture, you bought these items to get face. And so they're they're adapting these types of cultural things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're just trying to across the board, talk to everybody and, you know, we work and collaborate with other charities in the world, and it's all after the same mission, to educate people to just stop eating shark products.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've read about, uh, as you said, like the cultural motivations for shark fin soup, how it symbolizes wealth and prosperity. Um, so it's very interesting that it's called conspicuous consumption. I never mm-hmm. that before. Um, Yeah, just about the general process of shark finning, I believe they cut off the fins of sharks and then throw the body back alive. So is it, do usually all of them just drown, not drown, but um, die after that? Is that why it's harmful?
1: So the traditional way of finning is to pull the sharks on board to cut the fins off and then to throw the body back. But that doesn't happen anymore that doesn't happen anymore because now the whole body is being sold for very different parts. And so what's happening is um, even though before they threw the sharks overboard and sharks can't swim, they don't have their fins. So that yes, they would sink to the bottom and they would suffocate. That doesn't really happen anymore. Now the reason is that commercial fishing is the number one destroyer of shark population, of the shark population. Commercial fishing is really, if you've seen the movie, Sea Spiracy, I highly recommend it if you haven't, but that movie talks about um, the difficult problem of commercial fishing. So we're not talking about individual, small local indigenous uh, fishermen, right? We're really talking about commercial fishing that's on a scale where we're destroying the ocean and the species in it. So um, those fins are still cut off and the fins are then um, either put into a a freezer and sent to Asia to be processed, or they are dried. The skin is pulled off and then they're bleached and then they're dried again. And then they're sent to different parts of the world. So where I live in Hong Kong, for example, are thousands and thousands tens of thousands of shops in hong kong where they're selling shark dried shark fins along with dried seafood and you know we estimate that 50 percent of the world's shark trade comes here through hong kong and if if that and i think that's a conservative estimate so let's say 50% of the global shark fin trade is coming right here through Hong Kong. You know um, we don't know if it's where, how much of it is being consumed here in Hong Kong and how much is going, let's uh, say to Taiwan or Singapore or China. But, you know, those countries like Singapore and Taiwan have huge industries themselves where they are utilizing and eating shark as a part of their tradition. But the growing the fastest growing area of shark consumption, in fact, is the meat, like the steaks, where uh, they're serving it like ceviche or ceviche. Uh, so the, for example, Italy is considered to be high up there. Um, they're using, um, uh, they're having like sh- uh, steaks, like swordfish steaks and tuna steaks. They are also um, using the meat as fish and chips. So, for example, in Australia, the common fish and chip fish is flake and flake is shark. In New Zealand, it's lemon fish. In the UK, it is um, rock salmon. And in fact, there was a survey done in London of fish and chip shops a few years ago, and they found 10 out of 10 of the fish that they tested the DNA for were in fact all shark. And so, um, and part of that is because the cod industry, Nikita, uh, was fueling fish and chips, for example, but we overfished in the 90s, the cod industry. And so the price went up, the the amount of fish went down. And so um, they came up with other substitute fish to sell in fish and chips. So you have fish and chips, you know, you have um, ceviche, you have um, the liver, uh, the shark liver oil is being used for um, what we call it squalene. It's used in women's lipstick as an emollient to make lipstick moist. Mm-hmm. Um, to, um, they put it in mass facial, uh, lotion, body lotion. They're putting it, they even put it in COVID tests, you know, COVID vaccines. Um, they put in medicine, they put it in the pet industry. Uh, they put it in cat and dog food because they cat and the pet industry is a huge buyer of, um, scrap fish and they just mess, uh, grind it up and put it into canned, uh, cat and dog food. Uh, what else are they using it for? They're using it for supplements, that liver oil. So if you look at the countries that use and consume the most shark in the world, tied for like third place is Indonesia and South Korea. Mm. Second in the world is Italy. And that's because Italy eats a lot of seafood. Um, and, and they also, they use a lot of shark. They actually use the skin of the shark to make leather because they're master tanners in Italy. Um, They're putting it in the makeup industry. They have a large makeup industry and women's makeup products. So, Italy, people don't realize that it's very high. But the number one country in the world that consumes the most shark is Brazil. And so, it's not even China. So, you know, we have to be aware of what we're looking at. Yes, we are contributing to the destruction of the species, but we can take control of that and do what we're, and that's what we're all about here at Hong Kong Shark Foundation, which is to empower people and teach people how they can be a solution to the problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like personally was not aware of sharks and their use in the cosmetic or pet industry, or um, just the sheer number that were being consumed. So I think as to your mission, What you're doing about teaching, especially young people, is very important. Mm. And you've discussed the cultural and commercial exploitation of sharks. So I wanted to ask, what are the consequences of um, this reduction in shark populations for just our ecosystems in general?
1: Well, the consequences are quite grave because sharks are an apex predator at the top of the food chain. And as apex predators, what they are doing is uh, they are enabling biodiversity for us. You know, they call the sick, the slow, the weak, and they eliminate disease and they maintain healthy marine ecosystems. We we like to call sharks the cleaners of the ocean. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sharks also maintain food webs. No, the ocean needs sharks to keep the entire ecosystem in balance. And that's what sharks do. They help prevent particular species from crowding out others or overpopulating. They are important enough to be considered what we call keystone species, and which means that, they, that the entire food wave is actually delicately balanced on this apex predator. And we've seen what happens in some areas when shark populations are decimated with terrible effects on the ocean and on human populations nearby. Um, But what's interesting also is they regulate carbon. You know, oceans are major carbon sinks and sources of oxygen. And sharks scavenge dead bodies. And they release the carbon contained in those bodies to return to the cycle of life. You know, this is essential for the overall balance of life in the ocean and on land. So the ocean needs sharks to keep the cycle of carbon going. So, um, you know, we get 50% of our air and say 50% of our water from the ocean. So you can see we need clean oceans. We need vibrant oceans. We need oceans that are, um, uh, have healthy marine ecosystems. And so people don't realize that sharks play in sort, in such an important role. And so that's what I'm trying to teach people is the importance of sharks Um, And not to be scared, you know, a a good example of what happens when you um, don't keep the ecosystem in check and protect, you know, its apex predators is when, um, well, Hong Kong is a great example. Over 30 years ago, when I came here, we had sharks, but we do not have sharks in Hong Kong anymore. And the number one reason is that we have overfished them. We have overfished them. And we've overfished the food that they can eat. So we've overfished the fish that the sharks can eat. And so, you know, we just don't have sharks. And that's terrible. And that's why we don't have any fish here either. And so there there are, in the world, there are um, sanctuaries. And we can talk about that more later. But those sanctuaries are are not solutions to the bigger global problem.
0: Right. Yeah, I think... um what you mentioned about overfishing sharks are especially vulnerable to them as i read on your website that they're slow growing and they take years to mature exactly. so as we overfish them they cannot they're not reproducing fast enough to make that sustainable in any way and also what you exactly. said about the carbon capture i think that's very interesting i know there's research something called animating the carbon cycle where they're finding mm-hmm. animals like elephants and sea otters. They're helping store more carbon. And, um, you know, now sharks. I think that's um, that's very important for people to know since, you know, I feel like sometimes people just see, you know, shark conservation or any conservation is just, you know, compassion for animals, which is true, but it's also important for our own sustainability. So I think everything you mentioned is um, very interesting. So just getting into... Yep. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Could, may I interrupt? Just to talk on that point
1: you just said, um, that sharks are, even though they're fish, they are, like you said, they're low producers and slow producers. And that's a great point that you're saying, Nikita, because they their sexual maturity doesn't even come t- till, say, five to 15 years. Right. So it depends on the species. And there are over 500 species of shark but only 12 species are actually protected say under CITES, um, which is the convention on the international trade in endangered species. And that CITES, C-I-T-E-S, it only protects 12 fish, sharks right now. And so when they're low producers and slow producers like gestation will be say six months to two years. And for example, uh, the Greenland shark, which can live, the, say, up to 500 years, they the female of the Greenland shark uh, doesn't become sexually uh, mature until she is 100, 120, I've heard 150 years old. So if we're killing these apex predators before they can reproduce, then there are not enough sharks in the ocean and so that's why we really can't just say it's okay or sustainable to eat one kind of shark and not another we really have to have a ban on eating all sharks so that they can be allowed to live and you know but we're competing with revenue that's something you know in the billions of dollars every year and um but we know for a fact that a live shark is more valuable to the economy and to the environment ocean environment uh, than it is a dead shark, say to trophy hunting or, you know, f- uh, fishermen. And so uh, it's 200 times more valuable alive than dead. So we're trying to teach people that of these 500 species, we shouldn't be just s- uh, saving or protecting 12, right? We, yeah. we need to save all of them. And that's really important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what you mentioned, just like putting an economic value on animals and just the ecosystems they ecosystem services they provide, it really just gives you um, insight into how important they are for ecosystem. And um, just you know, talking about your campaigns and your main initiatives, um, can we? I, uh, can you elaborate on how your organization involves the youth in your work, since that's a very important component? Um, in your work and specifically on the ambassador program and how you implement conservation education.
1: So, as I mentioned, you know, we know for a fact over a hundred million sharks are killed every year for their fins, you know, and 50% of that trade is coming right here through Hong Kong. You know, it's a cruel and unsustainable practice. And we know, as we've discussed, that sharks are important as apex predators, but they make a lot of money. You know, so the government in Hong Kong has been uh, uh, proactive. And we have um, in 2013 stopped eating shark fin at banquets here, government banquets, but it is not illegal. In fact, most of the world it's not illegal to have shark fins. So the government did uh, help us to enact a new law in, in um, last year in 2021. But I think the majority of results in success comes from just people like you and I, Nikita, in educating them. So we're really about education. And we have three different campaigns. One is our education program, Shark Ambassadors, uh, where we go out to schools and we teach kids how to be leaders. You know, it's a student-driven initiative that enables motivated students in Hong Kong and the world, really to become a vital part of the shark conservation movement. I think what's important is that our education program puts students in charge and allows students to be leaders. It helps build leadership, responsibility, and capacity. And it does create real change. And it allows the students to be the catalyst for that real change. So our education program is one. Second program is our shark free company where corporates can get involved and be a shark free company. And it's just so super, you know, if any of your listeners work for a company and they want to be shark free, reach out to me and you, you put our logo on yours and you put, we put our logo on, on our website. And we basically ask you, just tell your employees when you have a corporate event, when you're going out for a meal, you will not order shark fin soup. It's simple as that. So easy to do. (laughs) And that's been really successful. Um, and the third thing is to have a shark-free wedding. So um, unfortunately, we in Hong Kong are still under COVID restrictions. So not many people can have um, uh, any weddings, in large weddings, at least in 2022. But we hope that will change soon. But the key focus, as you mentioned, Nikita, is really on education and we just think that's so important and we are you know we've we've given over 600 seminars in schools um and so far in 2021 i spoke to over 10,000 students mm-hmm. and over 45,000 students since i've been doing this for 7 years so i think that the kids as the ambassadors take charge and they're the ones to decide what they want to do to raise awareness in their community, within their family, within their peer group, within their school. And it's been really successful.
0: Yeah. And I also saw that you just yesterday went to a beach cleanup with IB students to clean up microplastics. Um, I think that's very cool. Um, I'm also from an IB school. And I have a plastic. Oh, so I, I mean, I wish we had the opportunity to do something as interesting, but um. We can. We
1: can do that remotely. We can talk about that later. But see, that this is young people like yourself and those kids that you saw um, on our post. You know, we are empowering them. We're just farmers planting the seeds of change. Right. And that's what I like to call myself as a farmer and just helping kids, enabling them to be able to figure out how they can make change for good. And, um, you know, these kids decide what they want to do. We collaborate with them and, and support them and guide them and mentor them. And we do it all over the world, actually, wherever I can. But I focus, of course, because I live in Hong Kong. I really focus here. And I think IB, International Baccalaureate Schools, are particularly good at this. And we have a lot of them in Hong Kong. And that's great to hear that you're also going to an IB school because in the IB schools, you have that cast creativity, action, service, and you have to give back. And it's fantastic because what we did, that's exactly why we created the Shark Ambassador uh, a program, because we wanted to allow, we wanted to give kids in IB schools the ability to uh, raise awareness about shark conservation and fulfill and meet their cast requirement. So sustainable development goals, uh, which we many of us know, and you would be surprised how many don't know, there are 17 SDGs. Mm
0: -hmm. Number
1: 14 is life below water. And that's what we're all about. We're really about pushing this. We're really about getting the students engaged to understand the importance of Life below water, and um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of schools that are not IB, uh, they are not involved in SDGs unless you happen to have a teacher that's really switched on. So, in a school that has no capacity for learning outside the basic, say science or you know uh, 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 English or whatever it happens to be, they can learn from our talks. And that's by giving a talk, whether it's by Zoom or in-person, that's how we've stayed alive. And, you know, we ask for a little donation when we give a talk. Now, we didn't used to do that, but COVID changed that. And we talk about SDGs. We talk about um, how kids can be empowered, how how sharks are important, how the ocean is important. So um, we're absolutely about education and we're happy to work with lots of different students
0: yeah i mean i love how you know inclusive the ambassador program sounds and um also from personal experience with the campaign to free the elephant at the local zoo i realized the mm-hmm. importance of emotionally involving the community and just starting at yeah. a grassroots level yeah. is just what was the most effective so far because you know, the legislations are unpredictable but um what you've done and just education in general is very important and um other than students you also you just Focus on, for example, couples for the free, um, the shark-free wedding programs. I wanted Mm -hmm. to understand, um, just given the cultural importance of sharks in um, Hong Kong for whatever status symbols, what is, how did you, how do you market this program and what is the reaction of people? Are they open to it or does it take the convincing? How does that work?
1: Young people today are really switched on. And they really get conservation and they understand how it's all interconnected and how your actions have reactions. So making that a part of their, you know, um, daily life or making that a part of their culture or their tradition is really not difficult because um, they just want to give back. So that's why we started the shark free wedding campaign so that young people, when they were getting married, they could educate um, their family and friends about why having shark was not sustainable. Okay. And uh, I'll give you an example of Bonnie and her husband, Hugo. So Bonnie and Hugo were getting married in Hong Kong a couple years ago, and they they really didn't want to have shark fin soup. But turned out that their grandparents were paying for the wedding, okay? And that's really common. And that's another phenomenon we've discovered, which is um, uh, uh, passive consumption. Young people don't want to be a part of this destruction of the planet and the ocean, okay? But when it comes to getting married, their parents or their grandparents or their aunties or uncles, they're the ones that are paying for the wedding. So when that happens, the tradition kicks in and they say, well, we have to buy, you know, expensive food and impress people at the wedding. Uh, If not, people will say that we're cheap and we'll lose face. And so the way around that is Bonnie and Hugo decided, well, we're going to put little plaques, you know, we're going to put little tent cards on every table and, and we're going to, with the menus, and we're going to sh- tell people why we purposely chose not to have shark fin soup, because we want to do something good for the planet and for all of our guests and for our future generation. And it's very successful and it works perfectly. And when people see the logic, when people are educated and they understand the impact that just one bowl of soup is having on the planet, I think most people will say, well, let's just not, then let's not have that. They will happily change their habits. The challenge is, is getting that, you know, getting those people out there to um, be educated. You know, we don't have the budget for big campaigns on TV. We don't have a, we can't have big Um, ads on the sides of buses or billboards. So that's why we created the ambassador program, Shark Free Company and the Shark Free Wedding, because theoretically all those people who are volunteers participating, they're all ambassadors, right? And they're taking out our message to people. Um, It is a slower process. I understand that. But when you are faced with certain challenges, you you make the best of it. And I think that we have been successful in changing hearts and minds, but we're not going to stop. We have a lot of work still to do.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's very interesting. I read on your website, you've um, accomplished 247 shark-free weddings so far. And I mean, I feel like that's very significant. And um, can you also... Tell us about how you've changed the minds of corporations in your shark-free corporate campaign. Um, just what what is the background on that? And it's progress.
1: So you know, our shark-free company uh, campaign was started uh, about uh, five years ago, and it's it basically enhances public and stakeholder images. Right? It allows corporates to be seen as committed credible and proactive leaders in environmental sustainability. You know, it it helps them to avoid any potentially negative publicity by, say, if they were going to have shark fin. Um, And it also enhances employer brand, you know, makes a meaningful commitment that encourages shared values. Companies can More effectively attract and inspire like-minded employees. And this is what young people want. You know, when I was a recruiter before, young people were asking me about the company that they were applying to, what was their CSR policy like? What's their ESG policy like? Right? And, um, you know, most companies don't have something that they give out from an HR standpoint. And this is a great way to say, well, look, for example, we're a shark-free company. You know, we're leaving a positive legacy. We're taking a stand and we're helping to ensure healthy oceans survive for future generations. And that to me is so cool. And, you know, we... Um, we just signed up a c- two more companies to be shark free and it allows, it's a talking point. It allows people to say, look, um, we're giving back uh, in this way by telling our employees, um, that we will not be eating shark, uh, as, uh, at any corporate events. And we're doing our part for the community and for the ocean.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's. It's really good that to see that compa- uh, corporates are open to this type of change and you know how there's sort of a positive spin on it, just um, promoting sustainability in general. So I think just and also just extending past corporates going to the government level now, I feel like you've already touched on this, but can you maybe talk about are there any laws right now to mandate domestic or international trade of sharks or any concrete steps any countries have taken towards shark conservation that you would like to see in Hong Kong?
1: Well, right now there's no global law protecting sharks. Okay. Okay. Law is, laws are mandated on local levels, country to country. And so that's unfortunate. Um, You know, in Hong Kong, for example, Uh, We do have a law against consuming endangered species, one of those 12 protected sharks, like I mentioned to you, like great whites and basking sharks and whale sharks and and, uh, hammerheads and sawfish, right? So those um, sharks are protected. But if you have a, a whole bunch of shark fins mixed in together, there's no way for customs or the government to know if what species of shark that is unless they do something called a dna test and only through dna can they actually know if the species is endangered or not and that requires a lot of work for the government so they did pass a new law back on august of 2021 saying that um, under the protection of endangered species of animals and plants which is cap 586 now all of those Protected animals like ivory, elephants and ivory, tigers, pangolins, sharks, and other animals. Um, They are now protected under CAT 455, which is OSCO, O-S-C-O, which is the Organized and Serious Crimes Ordinance. So we have a little bit more law here. Uh, Unfortunately, in the year, because we've had such a strict and we're still under pretty strict covid um, uh, uh, regulations here, um, we are, we're not seeing any seizures, even though there's still a lot of shark fin being eaten here. Um, we're, there are not, um, uh, for us in Hong Kong, There are really going the, down the legal route is probably not the most effective route for us. We're more into trying to change uh, at the grassroots level. Um, around the world, There are um, now sanctuaries. Uh, The first sanctuary was started in 2009 in Palau. And now today, there are over 17, 18 sanctuaries in the whole world. Um, And and so, you know, those are in the Maldives, Palau, Micronesia, Marshall Islands, and and these sort of areas, Polynesia areas. But uh, there is a law coming out in the U.S., um, that, that law actually came out, uh, which would stop the buying, the selling, the transporting and the um, possessing of shark fins. And that is called the Shark Fin Elimination Act. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to pass. But unfortunately, in uh, January of 2020, um, under the Trump administration, the act was squashed. And so, um, it's come back again. We're hoping, um, as of April, 2022, there's wide support for the act with 241 co-sponsors in the, in the house and in the Senate, which is good. So we're hoping that will stop people from buying, transporting and selling. But right now we we don't have any of that ability. So I wish there was great news that I could tell you. Um, I, but we don't have a law. There's no such thing as an international ocean police force. Okay. So, and everybody has claim to international waters. And so we have to step back, I think, and do what we can do at a local level and not wait for the governments to tell us what is legal and not legal. And how we do that is we just have to change our habits. You know, maybe we need to look at being um, say more plant-based, Like we have a meatless Monday or we have a fishless Friday, right? And, you know, I think India is a great example where, you know, India in 2015 passed a no shark finning law. But unfortunately, India is the eighth largest exporter of shark fins in the world. You you may not eat shark fins in India, right? But you have so many sharks there. And so you have such a vast amount of ocean around your country that what people are doing are fishermen, commercial fishermen, are catching it and then just selling it to other parts of the world. You know, having a law doesn't necessarily yeah. help the sharks. So education, I think, is really what helps people.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think uh, yeah, it's very difficult to enforce global laws about these sort of things. I know for sites for regulating international trade. There are a lot of loopholes and lack of um, cases of lack of regulation. Um, for example, they just track animals um, to a certain just from one country to another, but after they don't track it anymore. So, it, like it's just it's just very difficult to um, have uh, properly enforced law. And I hope, but I do hope the act in the U.S. passes. I think it would be uh, a good step in the positive direction. Um, and what you said regarding changing habits for sharks, I was just really interested to know. Um, we have we often have a prejudice prejudice against sharks due to their mm-hmm. as dangerous predators, you know, in, in the media or um just generally. Does this negative public perception of sharks serve as a challenge in your advocacy, you know, compared okay. to other more favored animals like yeah, pandas or elephants? <laughs>
1: Well that's a great question because you know hard to hard to have a cute and cuddly shark right like a panda mm-hmm. right? yeah. or or even a tiger right you know i mean this yes this perception fueled by hollywood for example is really something that is a hurdle has been a hurdle for us to get over and um, an interesting point here is that Uh, Peter Benchley, who wrote the book Jaws, and then they made it into a movie, right? Um, That movie had such an impact. That book and movie had such an impact on people, including myself, where Mm -hmm. even to this day, when I go in the ocean, I think about sharks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Peter Benchley had such remorse about writing a book. That had such a negative impact globally on the shark population and the shark persona, and image that he actually, in his later years, became a shark advocate and a shark animal rights advocate. So he really turned around, and that just goes to show you—you know—someone who wrote that and then has this sort of his own epiphany about um, what he needs to do to give back and make change. So yes. Um, I get asked about Megalodon and um, by the younger kids, older people, of course, Jaws. And so reversing that image, um, I'll give you a great example. We um, will uh, buy cute and cuddly shark plushies to sell um, to uh, people as a way to raise money right? And they are the best sellers, I'm telling you. I a pink shark, which to the best of my knowledge doesn't exist, but it might because there are over 500 species, but we have these pink sharks and the kids absolutely love them. But it, it sort of, um, it humanizes, you know, it, it makes the animal a little bit more palatable for the younger generation. And kids are so in love with helping animals and helping the planet. And they love sharks. It's just amazing. So it is an absolute delight. And it's a pleasure and privilege to be able to teach kids about the importance of sharks and how they can take action uh, through their schools or whatever they do, they can take action to protect sharks.
0: No, I think that's so interesting to know. I know, um personally, I've <laughs> been scared of sharks, but I think having this conversation with you and just getting into animal activism has um, just made me see a different side of them mostly in the, the role they play in the ecosystem. And um, as you said, just humanizing the animal in general um, appeals to the youth. And um, lastly, I wanted to ask how can our listeners and you know young people get involved in your cause, you know any social media ha- handles, or your ambassadorship program? Well, this is, uh,
1: volunteers are very important to Hong Kong Shark Foundation. They really are the lifeblood. And we are really involved in getting kids to be involved in, in their schools. But one of the ways we reach out to them in an economic way is through social media. And as much as I dislike kids being on social media, I have to say that, um, you know, we're pretty active because it's an it's an economical and efficient way for me to get our message out quickly. And remember, our mission is five words, raise awareness about shark conservation. Mm -hmm. And the best way we can do that is through Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. um, We are on Twitter and we're even on Weibo in China. Um, And Facebook is is you can just Google Hong Kong Shark Foundation and, you know, that's kind of for the 40 and over crowd in a lot of ways. Facebook is 40 and over, and Instagram is sort of 30 and under. And Twitter, not so popular here in, in Hong Kong, but Instagram and Facebook, very good. LinkedIn is very strong for the business community. I think people really appreciate seeing that kind of activism and seeing how they can get more involved. Um, we have a website. And so if people want to get more involved, whether it's adults or kids or want, adults want to get their kids involved, um, they could just invite me, for example, to be a speaker at their school. Uh, I do lots of talks on Zoom. We perfected that during COVID. And um, if they want me to come out to their school and talk, I'd Zoom schools all over the world, actually. Um, if kids want to start a cast club or if they're an IB great. If they just want to start uh, a a WhatsApp group chat with me, I have kids in um, different parts of the world where they're interested, like in New York, for example. In New York City, I have some students from Fordham University right now, and they've invited me to come out uh, through Zoom and speak to them. I'm going to talk, and then we're going to do some fundraising through their school And we're going to do some awareness raising in their school. We're going to brainstorm activities that we can do. So just because you're not in Hong Kong doesn't mean you can't be a part of Hong Kong Shark Foundation. So, yeah, reach out to us. You know, email me um, at andrea at hksharkfoundation.org. You can DM me on Instagram. But uh, I really love collaborating and working, especially with young people all over the world. And, you know, you are the future as far as I see. And as I'm that farmer, like I mentioned, I'm planting those seeds of change. And I know we can do good um, and we can do some important work together. Uh, And so even if you are an activist group and you want to do something, we our beach cleanup, for example, was in conjunction with another uh, charity, another NGO here called Plastic Free Seas, and you know, because microplastics are really a big problem in the ocean, and the reason why we teamed up and frequently team up with, uh, say, Plastic Free Seas is because this microplastic comes from single use and we want students to learn to reduce and reuse before they even think about recycling. And so uh, where does that, when that plastic bottle, single use gets thrown into the landfill and then sometimes ends up in the ocean, right? Then it disintegrates. Little fish eat the microplastics, big fish like sharks eat so many of the little fish. There's a heavy accumulation of lead mercury and arsenic poison in the shark meat. I mean, that's a whole nother reason why you shouldn't eat shark meat. There's poison in the shark meat. And so that's, you know, we want people to understand the connection between the amount of takeaway plastic you're eating, or the straws, or the masks that you're using—you know, we're still using masks here, and it's just insane how many masks every day people are using. And you know, we're big consumers of seafood here in Hong Kong. We have the second highest consumption in Asia of seafood, eighth in the world. You know, the average Hong Kong person eats sixty-five point five kilograms of seafood a year, that's three times higher than the global. So people are eating a lot of seafood. And I tried to tell them, you know, your seafood probably has plastic in it because mm-hmm. And we take them to the beach and we show them this at the beach uh, is what you're eating every day when you eat seafood. So rethink what you're doing. And, you know, maybe that plant-based diet for a while, giving the planet a, a chance to change is, is, a, is a solution. But um, we just want people to be aware of their actions and that their actions have consequences. So, um, if they wanna get involved, you know, and they wanna reach out to me and collaborate as a charity or as students or as a company, absolutely, I am very happy to speak with them and work with them.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very powerful message. And we'll link the social media handles in the description and also your website link. And I think. I just feel like this discussion has been very informative and inspiring, especially just for regular people and students who just want to help. You don't have to have a scientific background to be involved in this. And I think just personally learning about just shark finning and trade, how that endangers sharks who are significant as cleaners of the ocean, as you call them. um, That was very cool. And just terms like passive and conspicuous consumption um, is just very cool to learn about them. And I just wanted to em- emphasize what you've said. It's just a the common theme of giving back. And I really like the metaphor that you said about, you know, a farmer planting the seed. It's sort of mm-hmm. like a chain reaction. So I think um,
1: yeah.
0: that's a very important just message to like, gain from this discussion. Um, yeah, so I really wanted to thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. And thank you for our listeners as well. Thank you, Nikita. And it's such a delight, and it's
1: people like you that give me hope about our future, which is why I teach, because every time I go and meet bright people like yourself, I know that our future is in good hands. So I thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak to your listeners and for even thinking about this important topic, which so many people, you know, are not really aware of. And again, it's all about raising awareness and working together for solutions and giving back. So uh, yes, I wish you all the best. And thanks again for inviting Hong Kong Shark Foundation.